Good evening, everyone. It's uh, good to see you guys here. Uh, you know, just seeing you guys here at church in person. Um, it's, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, I know there's not, you know, as many of us as we're used to uh, here in this room, but, you know, just looking out there, you, it just seems like you guys really just kind of fill, fill the sanctuary and, you know, kind of reminds Reminds me of the kind of like the old the old light days when we would be in the uh, that student center in the the, uh, the downstairs room there. Uh, didn't seem like there was that many of us in that room, but you know it seemed like we were able to fill that room pretty well. So um, I think it's um, it might be graduation season. I think there's a couple of couple of you uh, graduating, I believe. Um, so congratulations. Uh, you might think those are the one of the probably like the last two of, of our lighters uh, to, to graduate. So um, if that's true, congratulations. If not, um, sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll get started tonight. Um, so uh, let's just uh, start with a word of prayer. Uh, dear God, uh, we just uh, thank you um, for giving us this night, uh, whether uh, we are here to uh, listen to your word um, here at church or um, just at home or, or wherever we might be. Um, we just thank you for allowing us to meet uh, and to just to listen to your word and um, what it has to teach us uh, about who you are and about your glory. And so um, we just pray that you would um, just bless this time uh, and just uh, bless your word and then, uh, encourage and strengthen us and challenge us um, just to live in a way that would honor you. I just pray all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I believe we are approaching uh, the end of our series uh, in Psalms, or at least we're getting close. Uh, so we've covered uh, a various number of Psalms, uh, Psalms of praise, Psalms of lament, Psalms of confession. Uh, and the psalmists, they've written uh, about some of the highest and some of the lowest uh, experiences that maybe a person um, could ever go through or, or even feel. And as each week passes, as we study another psalm, uh, it's almost as if we can see and hear new ways in which we can praise God. And though through any emotion and through maybe even any circumstance, um, we can see that we have the opportunity and the honor of worshiping our God. Um, tonight's psalm is a little tough. Um, we're going to look at a pretty low and, and sad time in the history of God's people. Um, but we'll see that um, how even in these kinds of circumstances, uh, we can uh, praise God. And so uh, our psalm tonight will be Psalm 79. Uh, Psalm 79, um, and I'll go ahead and just start by uh, reading uh, the psalm for us. And so it reads, Psalm 79, a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem and a prayer for help. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens and the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water around Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and lay waste to his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for the sake of your name. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power preserve those who are doomed to die 
and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. And so that's Psalm 79. And um, for our outline tonight, um, it's going to be um, just two parts. Uh, so the first is one is uh, Jerusalem's humiliation. Uh, Jerusalem's humiliation. Uh, and then secondly, it will be Jerusalem's hope. Uh, Jerusalem's hope. And um, in our first section there in Jerusalem's humiliation, we'll look at, um, we'll break that into two parts. Uh, first is the setting um, and then the cause, uh, the setting of Jerusalem's humiliation, uh, and then the cause. And so, uh, verses one through four again. Uh, o God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water around about Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. So there's maybe uh, a few potential events um, for which this psalm may have been written, um, but most likely, or maybe the most probable occasion um, for the psalm uh, is one of the most important events in the history of Israel and Judah and that's the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC, which ultimately um, or subsequently led to the exile uh, of the people. Um, now, you might also know um, or notice that the authorship of the psalm is credited to Asaph, um, and his name uh, should be pretty familiar to us. Uh, one, um, because if we're if you look back into the Chronicles, um, David, King David, had designated Asaph and his family as musicians who, as it says there, uh, were skillfully trained in the singing uh, and various instruments. Um, but maybe more notably, um, you'll see that the name Asaph uh, is credited um, with authorship of many of the Psalms uh, that have been written. Now, if that's the case, um, if the Asaph of David's day was the one to write this psalm, um, then either this psalm is potentially a prophecy or it's referring to another event um, because this Asaph in David's day could not have written this psalm during the time of the exile uh, as he would have been alive more than, more than a few hundred years earlier. Um, so one possible explanation is that some of the psalms attributed to Asaph are referring to psalms produced by a body of musicians who potentially could be the descendants of Asaph. Now, uh, we do see that even as late as King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 35, that the descendants of Asaph were still serving in some capacity. Um, but even though there might be some ambiguity concerning the author, uh, and maybe even some ambiguity concerning the actual event. Um, there's no denying the devastation that's written about in this psalm. And so the psalmist begins by lamenting, right? He says, the nations have invaded your inheritance. Uh, the Babylonians had come and besieged Judah and captured Jerusalem, right? They had come into God's country, God's capital. They had treaded upon and trampled on God's holy land. And as we look through verses two through four, uh, we'll look at three components which can make up the setting um, for uh, Jerusalem's humbling. First, uh, we see the defilement of the temple. In their capture of Jerusalem, the Babylonians, it says, it says they defiled the temple. Right? This was God's house. Right? God's house was looted. It was destroyed. Uh, it's documented all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, if you look at the end of Kings, the end of Chronicles, uh, if you look at the end of Jeremiah, uh, and even in Lamentations, right, they all give accounts um, to the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the, and the destruction of the temple. And in the end of Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 52, um, he accounts um, for what has happened uh, and to what happened to the articles that were 
um, part of the temple. Um, in verse 13, in Jeremiah 52, it says, they burned down the house of the Lord. Uh, and then um, down in verse 17, it says, now the bronze pillars which belong to the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea, which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They took all the way the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the basins, and the pans, and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the bowls, fire pots, basins, pots, and lampstands, the pans, the drink offerings, bowls that were fine gold and what was fine silver, the two pillars, one sea, and the twelve bronze bowls that were under the sea and the stands which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. All the bronze of these vessels was beyond weight. And this, this temple, this was the center of worship for God's people. And it was torn down and completely stripped of all that was inside. Right? All the instruments and all the tools made of precious metals that were used for service and worship were taken away and stored away as trophies of just another conquered land by the Babylonians. But maybe even more sadly than that, and the temple signified God's presence among his people, and now it was gone. And this was the, the heart of the nation. It, the temple, it, it was their existence. Right? If we look back and remember when the temple was first built, um, this is Solomon when he finally finishes building the temple, and he has the priests, and they finally are able to move the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. Uh, in First Kings 8, it says this, and it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled up the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord had said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And the temple was where God's glory resided. Right? It was supposed to be a place where God would forever be with his people. And now the psalmist looks and it's gone. Right? No place for them to worship, no place for them to offer their sacrifices. And secondly, we see the destruction of the land uh, in our setting of Jerusalem's humiliation, right? the destruction of the land. Right? As the psalmist looks around, not only is the temple gone, but the entire city has been laid to ruin. Right? Whatever used to provide protection or shelter, it was all gone. The walls, the gates, the buildings, right? everything was just heaps of rubble. And Jeremiah describes the event like this um, back in um, Jeremiah 52. Right? He says, now on the 10th day of the 15th, or the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, who was in service of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every large house he burned with fire, so that, or so all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And you may be aware that the Babylonians carried uh, many of the survivors into captivity into Babylon, um, but the poorest of the people, Jeremiah says, were left in Jerusalem. Right? Those left behind were left to just fend for themselves, now with no walls to protect them from either thieves or wild animals, uh, no homes for shelter. And they were in their land, but completely helpless. And then lastly, um, we see um, the death of the people, uh, the death of the people in verses two and three. Right. Um, the, last part of, the last part of our um, setting uh, for Jerusalem's humiliation is the death of the people. Right. And if it wasn't enough then, right, with all the destruction, right, if, if that's all the psalmist saw, right, if he saw the destruction of the temple, and if he saw the destruction of the walls and the homes uh, and the gates, um, maybe that would have been okay if he didn't see this. Right? 
in verses 2 and 3, we see that the complete destruction of Jerusalem was accompanied by the death of Jacob's children. And the Babylonians came and they slaughtered uh, the people of Jerusalem. Uh, it says there that blood flooded the streets and bodies were left there with no one to bury them. Right? So even after their death, humiliation still followed the bodies as they were treated like carcasses of dead animals left to be picked apart by wild birds and wild animals. And again, for those who were left to survive, they were left to be mocked by those around them, by the surrounding nations. Right? They were left with what felt like no home, no family, no city, and seemingly no God. And that is the setting of our song. Right? This is you know, why the psalmist is crying out. He's crying out because of the death and the destruction that he sees all around him. So next, uh, we see the cause, right? We examine the cause of Jerusalem's humiliation, right? Why did this happen, and how could this happen? Right? We read in verses 5 through 8, um, the psalmist continues, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassions come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. The psalmist, we believe he understands perfectly why this is happening. Right? God is angry. Right? It has now come time for the people of Judah, the nation of Judah, to pay for her sins. Right? The events of the destruction of Jerusalem, the events of the exile, they were not a result of a singular moment of weakness uh, in God's people, but rather it was the result of centuries upon centuries of disobedience. If you, had, if you remember, um, upon the exodus uh, from Egypt, God had made a covenant with his people. And yet, after generation, after generation, after generation, God's people broke their covenant. And despite all the warning signs, all the prophets God had brought to bring the people back to himself, uh, the people ultimately refused to repent. So before we continue uh, in our text, um, we'll take a little break uh, from the passage, um, kind of like a, maybe a little of a field trip through Israel's history. Um, and so you can see, uh, and it will show that God's judgment isn't some form of impulsive action that he had or uh, some, some moment of impatience that God had. So we go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, right? The book of Deuteronomy is written by Moses, right? And at this point in time, right, the Israelites were at the very edge of entering into the promised land. And just before, the, just before they're about to enter, right, Moses, uh, who it knows that he is about to die because he can't go into the promised land, right, he knows that these are his final days, so he gives to Israel his final words. Right? He wants to ensure that the people understand that they've must uphold the covenant that they have made with God. And you can sum up this covenant and Moses' words fairly plainly. Um, if you obey God, you will live and experience all the promises and blessings God has in store for you in the land. But if you disobey and you don't repent, you and the land will be cursed. And if you continue to disobey, and you continue not to repent, you will eventually die. If we go back to Deuteronomy, uh, it's, uh, if you look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20, uh, it reads this. And, and this is kind of a summation of what Moses has been saying to his people to implore them to keep their covenant with God. 
He wants to remind them of all the blessings and all the curses that come with this covenant if they obey and if they don't. And it reads this. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that your, the Lord your God may bless you in the land which you are entering to possess it. But if, you, if your hearts turn away and you do not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land which you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants, by loving your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Right? So that's the deal, right? You obey, and you live in the land, and you will be blessed. And if you disobey, a couple chapters earlier, Moses describes how their destruction would come about. In Deuteronomy, again, just a couple chapters earlier, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 21 to 26, this is how right, the curse, the curses uh, will come upon the nation for their disobedience. And he says, the Lord will make pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew and they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed the lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies and you will go out one way against them but you will flee seven ways before them and you will be an example of terror to the, all the kingdoms of the earth and, and then this is verse 26 and it says your carcasses will be food to all birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth and there will be no one to frighten them away. If you listen to that last verse, it almost sounds exactly like what the psalmist had said in verse 2. The bodies of the dead are food for the birds of the heaven. The bodies of the dead are food for the beasts of the earth. I don't think that's a coincidence it's very possible that the psalmist sees what's happening in Jerusalem and it's clear to him that this judgment has come and it's and it isn't because God's people just started to break the covenant in the psalmist day right what we just read um, these were some of the last words of Moses right Moses Right after these words, right, Moses will pass away, and you know that it's Joshua, right, who is commissioned to lead Israel into the promised land. And after Joshua passes away, right, then who comes next? Right? It's the judges, right? Anybody here study judges, right? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, right? I'm sure many of you have heard messages concerning judges on Friday nights, right? But right after Joshua dies, do you remember what happens? Right, this is Judges chapter two, right? Judges chapter two, okay? Right after Joshua dies, it says, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Right? 
barely one generation after making their covenant. And ever since, Israel's history has been marked with idolatry. Yes, there have been times of obedience for which God brought prosperity, but much of Israel's history does not reflect too kindly upon her. And if God wanted to, God could have called upon all the curses that were agreed to in the covenant at that time. Right? It's pretty simple to understand. Right? If you break a contract, then you must pay. Right? I believe that's something we all understand. If you don't pay rent, eventually you will be kicked out. If you don't make payments on your car, eventually it will be repossessed. But, you know, you might have uh, some grace period, um, but sooner or later, you will have to pay. And it wasn't as if God didn't show any patience or grace. He continued to warn them. A lot of the curses that were brought upon Israel that we had read, the famine, drought, pestilence, disease, they all, as they happened, could have and should have reminded Israel that they were breaking their covenant and they needed to repent because if they continued to ignore these curses sooner or later it would be death the curse of death that would come upon them and if all the curses weren't enough God never stopped reminding his people through his prophets. Right, just as um, we talked about um, what happened when Solomon built the temple, right, and how God's glory filled the temple, it wasn't um, long after, right, right after Solomon had dedicated the temple to God, that God spoke to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9, one chapter later, saying to Solomon and warning him that if your sons turn from me and do not keep my commandments, the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and the house, this house, will become a heap of ruins. And God didn't just warn Moses and the people. He didn't just warn Solomon and the people. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, all of whom implored the people of Israel to repent. Right, even to the very last minute, right, right before the Babylonians were about to breach, right, God was still calling his people back. Jeremiah was one of uh, the prophets who ministered uh, before and during the fall of Jerusalem and during the exile. And listen to what God told him to say to Judah. And this is in Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am about to bring a calamity upon this place at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor their kings of judah have ever known i will make void the council of judah and jerusalem in this place and i will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life and at the end he says this I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. It's the same warning again. From the time of the judges all the way up until the fall of Jerusalem, we're talking, I don't know, 700 years, give or take. I mean, it's a lot of years, right? More than, not, not more than half a century, right? It's more than half of a millennium, right? God waited and he waited. He reminded them over and over. And then, as if God was giving Judah one last chance, right? By bringing Jeremiah to warn them what would happen if they didn't repent, 
right? You've experienced some of the curses already, right? But this last one will crush you, but you can still repent, right? But instead of repenting, they refuse to listen, right? And, it's, and if you read through Jeremiah, you can understand or, or see just some of the things that he went through for trying to get the people to repent on God's behalf, right? They beat him, they put him into stocks, right? They threatened his life, and they threw him into a pit full of mud, and they just left him there, hoping he would die. Right? This is God's prophet. The last one before destruction would come, and this is what they did. You know, God sent Jonah to the Assyrians, of all people. Right? These are like the most ruthless and barbaric people, maybe in the history of civilization. Right? God sent Jonah and these people repented. And it's like if God told you to go to the most dangerous place on earth and ask the most dangerous people that live there to repent of their sins, and they did. Right? These people were killers. They conquered nations and they killed people in the most heinous of ways. And even they were willing to repent. Right? God sent one guy Right? He sent Jonah. He sent Jonah, and Jonah didn't even want to do it. Right? He didn't even want to go. And then after he did it, he didn't want them to repent, and they still did. One guy, one guy, Jonah, to maybe the worst civilization maybe in history, and they repented. But God sent to his people prophet after prophet, his own people and this is what happens i mean he sent them moses he sent them solomon elijah isaiah jeremiah right and they still refuse to repent you could say well you know maybe maybe if god himself went down to his people maybe they would believe And eventually, he did that too, didn't he? But still, a lot of people didn't believe. So you can see why God has set his anger against his people. I hope that it's clear why God is so angry. So now, um, back to our passage, uh, back to Psalm 79, right? This judgment that has come, right? it's been coming for a long time, and I believe that the psalmist, he knows it. He doesn't ask why God is angry. He doesn't ask why God is jealous. I believe he knows. But instead, he asks, how long? As if he's asking God, right, when will you relent? When will your discipline on us be satisfied? Many of God's people over the course of history have prayed words like this. And I'm sure there's probably many of you that have probably prayed something like this too. Where you ask God, how long? That's what he says in verse 5. How long will you be angry forever? It's a lament. It's also a plea for mercy. Many have endured and suffered very much. Right? So the psalmist is crying out in hopelessness or in helplessness, um, but also in hope. Right? He's crying out in helplessness, but also in hope. And so he asks God, how long? And as we've been kind of studying through our psalms, I hope you guys can see or come to appreciate that, you know, it's okay to come to God, you know, with emotion, whether, you know, it's uncontainable joy or inexpressible, inexpressible sorrow or anything in between. I hope that whatever it is that you feel, it would cause you to be drawn to God. But 
Um, just a, a word of caution. Um, sometimes, I think, when we feel like praying how long, you know, that's kind of uh, where our prayers might end, right? How long is this going to go on? And that's, that's all we pray. Whether it's a difficulty, whether it's difficulty or discipline or a trial that we're experiencing, you know, a lot of times, right, we just want it to stop. And so we just want God to end it. Right? Just give me something different. Right? Give me something better. Right? In other words, even though we might never say it like this, right, our hearts are asking, God, just give me what I want. Right? This is what I need. This is what I deserve. Right? Look, look, look at everyone around me. Right? They all have it. You know? I should have it too. Right? How long do I have to wait? But obviously, that's not what the psalmist has in mind. Uh, instead, this tragedy causes him to place his focus on God. Right? The only way this situation will be resolved is if God is satisfied, not him. So I hope that can be a lesson for us. Right? It's okay right, to ask God to end suffering or to end sadness or to end grief. But we ought to remember, or we should always remember, that our desire is for God to be satisfied and not us. We want God to be satisfied. Because if God is satisfied, we'll be satisfied. So for God's anger and jealousy to be satisfied, the psalmist then, he prays for two outcomes. First, he asks that God direct or maybe redirect his anger towards his enemies. And he's asking God to judge those who have come and destroyed his land or God's land, right? The dwelling place of God's people. So we get to a point in this psalm where not only do we see this as a psalm of lament, um, but we also see what is called uh, an imprecatory psalm, an imprecatory psalm, meaning that the psalmist is calling upon judgment of God's enemies, right? The psalmist is calling God to judge his enemies. And... I don't believe that we've spoken too much about these kind of psalms in our series, so it might be uh, maybe helpful for us to go over um, just real briefly. Uh, when, it come, when we come across these psalms and when we read them, uh, it can make us uh, a little uneasy, right? It might seem very harsh or very cruel to ask God to enact judgment upon others. Right, you might say, and you would be correct in saying, right, didn't Jesus say that you know, we're supposed to love our enemies? Right? This doesn't sound very loving. But here are a couple things to consider, um, and it'll help us maybe understand why these types of psalms uh, are written. First, um, the author is writing under the divine inspiration of God. So we know that these words are authorized and authored by God himself. Uh, and second, um, but just because they do exist, uh, these psalms do not give us the authority or license to start uh, praying imprecatory psalms to en anyone anytime we feel wronged. If you get perhaps cut off on the freeway, you know, that may not be the time to invoke an imprecatory psalm, right? God, you saw what happened. That one, yes, you know, but just in case that blue Honda Civic license plate AW7, whatever, whatever, yeah, that one, they deserve it. They deserve judgment. And it's, there's a certain time and a place um, for these types of psalms and you know, those certainly are not it. Right? The psalmist is calling for judgment um, not intended solely for his own good or satisfaction. Right? 
but it is for God to accomplish his sovereign will. Right? These are prayers asking God to accomplish his will. Right? And then uh, thirdly, God's holiness requires judgment. God's holiness requires judgment. As one commentator puts it, he says, God's wrath is a function of God's holiness against sin. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath. Where God in his holiness confronts his image bearers in their rebellion, there must be wrath. Otherwise, God is not the jealous God he claims to be, and his holiness is impugned. The price for diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. Right? The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. Another teacher explains it further. Because we treat both holiness and sinfulness too lightly, we tend to ignore the fact that God's justice will punish evil just as surely as his goodness will reward righteousness. And so the psalmist is pleading with God that God turn his anger away from his people and towards those who ultimately deserve it. Right? And we know from scripture and we know from history um, that Babylon was eventually judged by God. And, and even before this event, even before the psalmist prays this psalm, right, it had already been prophesied that God would destroy Babylon for what they had done and for who they were. So in this case, this curse was an echoing of sorts of what was already prophesied before and ultimately fulfilled in God's sovereignty. And so it might make us a little uneasy um, when we see um, this, you know, these kind of psalms and we you know, see the psalmist invoke judgment upon his enemies but I hope you can understand that it is done so under the direction of God and for the purpose of God fulfilling his, uh, fulfilling his, fulfilling his will. Uh, and the second outcome then um, that the psalmist prays for uh, in order to satisfy God's anger is that he prays for forgiveness. One way for God's anger to be satisfied is through the judgment of the unrepentant um, but another is through the forgiveness of his people. Right? The psalmist knows the reason why they have come upon destruction. Right? They have broken God's covenant and they have turned away from him. So he pleads that God no longer act upon the sins of his people, but instead he asks that God look upon them with compassion. Right? And just as God is jealous for his name and for his people, he is also deeply compassionate for his people, willing and able to forgive. Right? And the desperation of this psalm is summed up here in the last part of verse 8, where he says, for we are brought very low. Maybe in order for the people to see the severity of their sin and cause them to repent, God needed to bring them very low, right? as if God had to put his people in a position where they were so low that there was no other choice for them except to turn to God and cry for forgiveness. And if you see, right, if you were there to see all the destruction and all the death that occurred at that time, Right. And even just reading it, I hope you can just see how seriously God takes sin. Right. These are the lengths that God is willing to go to correct the idolatry in his people. And maybe, you know, this might also be a good place um, to end this psalm. It describes the situation and it also describes the sentiment of the people very well. Right? They have been humiliated. They have been brought very low. Right? And they cry out to God for help. 
But we see that that's not where the psalmist decides to end his lament. Secondly, first we saw Jerusalem's humiliation, and now we see Jerusalem's hope. Right? And this is in verses, the rest of the chapter, in verses 9 through 13. And it says, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive us, or forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. Why is the psalmist asking for help? Why does he want forgiveness for his people? Certainly he he does want forgiveness for him and his people for their sins. And certainly he does want the restoration of his homeland, the, the city, God's city. And certainly, he wants justice um, for what has happened to his family, his friends, his neighbors. But we now are beginning to understand why, right? He's not praying these things to God. He's not lamenting to God, asking for uh, forgiveness. He's not asking for vengeance, not because he wants the suffering to end necessarily, right? He doesn't He's not about just having an easy, comfortable life. Right? Verse 9 explains the purpose of his prayer. The deliverance and the forgiveness that he is asking for is for the glory of God's name and for God's name's sake. Right? So you see that even in the lowest point of Judah's history, right, what does he want? He wants God to have his glory. He wants God to have the glory that only he deserves. And in verse 10, he doesn't want the nations to question God's presence. And again, we see the imprecatory nature of the psalmist's words. He wants vengeance and justice for those who are killed. And you also see in verse 12, he says, they have reproached you. Right? They have a total disregard for who God is. Right? They insulted God's place of worship. They have poured out the blood of God's people onto its streets. Right? And so you see that the psalmist has a concern, not just for himself and for his people, but his concern is for God's name, for God's honor. And sandwiched in between those two verses is verse 11, where then he pleads for God's protection, right? For maybe the survivors uh, or maybe uh, those who are gone into exile, he pleads with God to spare them. And then we come to the very last verse, right? All of this, right? All the asking God for forgiveness, all the asking God for justice, all the asking God to preserve his people, right? all of this so that God can be glorified. All of this so that God's people could survive and do what they were created to do, and that's worship him. And he says, we are your people. God, we need your forgiveness. God, we need your compassion. Right? We are the sheep of your pasture. Right? God, you are our shepherd. Right? We need your protection. We need your provision. Right? God, for your glory, we need you. Right? We have taken away your glory by following other gods. 
right? Forgive us and bring us back so that we can fulfill our purpose as your people. And then when we look back on today, right, the worst day in the history of our people, we will praise you, right? And our children will praise you and our children's children will praise you, right? Forever, he says, we will praise you. The psalm starts with Jerusalem's humiliation. They have been brought, as he says, very low. And yet somehow the psalmist is able to end with hope, right? The hope that his people will be praising God forever. Right? And this hope of salvation is grounded in the desire to seek God's glory. So, um, a couple applications then um, for us as we consider um, what the psalmist has written. One, uh, don't take lightly God's discipline. Right? It might seem harsh at first that God would allow so much death and destruction to come about his own people. Right? But understand that this was a covenant. Right? This was an agreement. Also, right, God has given his people plenty of time and opportunity to repent. Right? Centuries after centuries, prophet after prophet. They could have turned back at any time. And I would imagine that God would have forgiven them. Right? It wouldn't have come to this. But also, God will do whatever it takes to keep his people. Even if it's something this severe, he will do it. Right? That's how much God's glory means to him. He says through Isaiah, right, he says he will not give his glory to another. He also says in Proverbs chapter 3, um, verse, verse 11, he says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And God will discipline his children because he loves them. And he will discipline them and he will do whatever it takes to keep them. Right. It's out of fatherly love right, that he disciplines us, disciplines his people, so that he can ensure the best for his children. And the best thing for any of God's people or any of God's children is to be faithful to him. And second, commit yourself to seeking God's glory in every circumstance. Commit yourself to seeking God's glory in every circumstance. Right? A psalm like this helps us to understand how we can keep our focus even among the most trying of times. Right? You look back uh, even to the beginning of the psalm, right? and the psalmist says, and everything he says, it's yours uh, in reference to God. Right? They have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your temple. They have given the dead bodies of your servants, your godly ones. Right? Everything that is happening, right? It's, he sees it. He sees everything that's happening, and it's seen through the lens of God. Right? He's seeing it through God's perspective. He sees there has been a compromise to God's glory, and so he prays for change. Right? Justice against his enemies, mercy for his people, right? that's all for God's glory. Justice for his enemies, that's for God's glory. Mercy for his people, that's for God's glory. Right? And that's why if we are able 
to commit to seeking God's glory in all of our circumstances, right? You can be like this psalmist, or you can be like Job, right? You guys are familiar what happened to Job, right? And you are familiar with how he responded, right? In Job chapter 1, you know, after all the cataclysmic events that had befallen him, the death of his family, and, and the loss of pretty much everything he had, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell down to the ground and worshipped. Right, he said, and he worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right. It's the same reason Habakkuk can say, right, I have heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered. Decay entered my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For those who arise who will invade us, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Right, so how can one, how can anyone go from humiliation to hope? Right? You focus on God's glory. You focus on God's glory. Many of you are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, written in 1646. If you are familiar, you know what the first question is. Right? What is the first question? The first question that this catechism asks is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And what's the answer? Right? If you know the question, most likely you know the answer too. Right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Psalms 86, 9, all the nations whom have thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and thou shalt glorify thy name. Romans eleven thirty six, for of him and through him and to him all things to whom be in glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether Wherefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then Revelations 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Right, the sole purpose of our lives, right, the sole purpose of Creation is to bring God glory. Right? And one of the things that the Psalms teach us is how to praise and glorify God in any situation. Right? From the most joyous of times to the most difficult, they are all opportunities to draw near to Him in praise and worship. And so I hope that you can appreciate what a liberating thought that is. Right? There is no circumstance in life, right? No circumstance in life that can deter you from fulfilling your purpose. There's no circumstance in life that can deter you from filling, from fulfilling your purpose, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, we're just uh, thankful again for your word. Um, we're thankful for your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. Uh, we even thank you for your judgment. Uh, because in all these things, you glorify yourself. And so Lord, we just um, pray for ourselves as your people, that you would allow us to remain faithful to you, uh, and that through any circumstance, we would seek 
first and foremost, your glory. Uh, and in your glory, uh, we will be fulfilled. Uh, we will fulfill our purpose as your creation. We will fulfill our purpose as your people. And we will fulfill our purpose as the sheep of your pasture. Uh, so we thank you for loving us, for saving us, for allowing us to glorify you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.